Amen. Hey, you all did really good at that. <laughs> awesome. You all can go ahead and grab your seats. I don't know if you notice how something like that just changes a room, doesn't it? I don't know about, the room feels a little bit different to me, right? Because we're not just a bunch of people sitting in pews staring up front. You know, we're his church. We're people. We're God's children, his sons and his daughters. Uh, Jesus said these words in John chapter 10. Uh, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. Uh, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Uh, the old life is gone. A, a new life has begun. I mean, Jesus said, I, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And, and, and the word says anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And you see, life change, life in all its fullness becoming a new person, a new life beginning. That is what we want to be all about. That is what we want to drive us as a church. Uh, we don't want to be driven by buildings, by budgets, by programs, by events. We, we don't want to be driven by the opinions and agendas of people. We want to be driven by life change. And In fact, in January this year, we rolled out our, our new vision statement, which is following Christ and life changing community. Uh, listen, as Mark shared, if, if you begin to follow Christ, you know, your life is going to be changed. You're going to be different. And uh, we see lives being changed all the time uh, around this church. And now this week we are in our fourth week of this series we're calling Never the Same, where we're flipping through the pages of the gospel and we are, we're looking at some of the one-on-one encounters that, that God had with, with men and women when he War flesh and walk the planet. And as we look at these encounters, uh, one thing has been evident is, is that when people come face to face with Jesus, when they come face to face with the great I am, with God in the flesh, uh, like the invalid on a mat by a pool, like the thirsty woman at, at the well who was looking for soul quenching in all the wrong places, like the woman caught in adultery. Well, in John chapter 8, one thing is evident that these people were never the same. And this week, we're going to unpack yet another encounter um, in God's Word. And, uh, and just remember this, of, of all the hundreds of encounters that Jesus had you know, when he walked this planet, these are the ones the Holy Spirit said, hey, I, I want you to write these down. And for 2,000 years, you and I have been able to read these encounters. So I'm convinced that, you know, they're there for a reason. And they're there to speak to us. And then if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, we'll encounter God this morning ourselves. Uh, would you pray with me? And palms open, as we like to do, symbolic that we're ready to receive from God. Uh, Heavenly Father, we love you and we humbly, God, come into your presence. Uh, God, there's no one like you. No one compares to you. God, you are life. And you give us life, and you love us, and you pursue us, and you're alive, and you're active, and you're in this place. And God, I pray that you would just open up our hearts and our minds, that we would hear from you. God, help me to say what you want me to say in the way you want me to say it. God, help me to hear your truth myself today. God, we love you, and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been driving down the road? 
and all of a sudden things don't look that familiar anymore? I mean, your heart starts to race, the back of your neck starts to sweat. You have no idea where you are. I mean, a while back you thought you were on the right road, and now you're clueless as to where you are. You frantically look for anything, a building, a sign, a landmark, a tree, anything that will help you figure out where you are. Then the questions start flooding in. You know, should I stay on the road? You know, is this road taking me further away from where I want to be? Do I have enough gas in the tank? Uh, how, how soon will it start to get dark? Should I turn this thing around and just head back the way I came? Question, have you ever made a U-turn in your life? Absolutely, right? Do you like to make U-turns? Do you make them a lot? Uh, do you ever fight against them and, and keep driving the wrong way? Uh, do you ever find it frustrating when you need to make a U-turn and either there isn't a place to make it or there's a sign that says, not that one, there's a sign that says the next one, no U-turns allowed. I've made, if you've driven with me, I've made a lot of U-turns in my life physically. And to be honest, I've made a, I made a lot of U-turns spiritually. In fact, I used to have a license tag frame that said this right here. I'm about to get a new one. It says this, head it the wrong way. God allows U-turns. Aren't you glad he does? I mean, we don't have to keep going the wrong way. We can hang a U-turn. Well, this morning, we're going to meet a religious guy uh, uh, who had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with the king of glory. And in this encounter, he, he was told that, that he was headed in the wrong direction and needed to hang a U-turn and begin driving on a new road, a road that would lead to a life where the pressure was off. His name is Nicodemus, and we meet him in John chapter 3. And understand, after all these years, Nicodemus was confident that he had everything pretty well figured out. He had crossed all his T's. He had dotted all his I's. He had the system down. I mean, if anyone knew how things worked, it was him. He had spent his entire adult life not only studying the Scriptures, but teaching others about them. He was looked up to. He was well-respected. People were constantly coming to him to get answers to their questions. Listen, Nicodemus had driven many miles down this road, and he had never, not once, encountered anything, a sign, a landmark, a, a crazy twist in the road that would have led him to believe that he was headed in the wrong direction. Question, have you ever been that sure of something and then found out you're wrong? And then in John chapter 2, the, the chapter before this encounter, an event happens that begins to, to shake the nice, tidy little world of this religious leader. Understand, Nicodemus thought it was just going to be another typical holiday season. Get everything ready, make all the preparations, choose the lamb, bake the bread, cook the bitter herbs, then celebrate the Passover. You know that annual reminder that God's people have been observing for 1,400 years when they celebrate the time that, that God, through Moses, delivered them from a 400-year bondage in Egypt? bringing the mighty Pharaoh to his knees with ten plagues, the last plague of the death of the firstborn passed over God's people because they had applied blood, the blood of the lamb, to a doorpost. And over the years, Nicodemus has celebrated 50 or 60 Passovers, so many that he lost count. And when spring rolled around, once again, there was no reason for him to expect that this year's observance would be any different than the last. Choose the lamb, bake the bread, Cook the bitter herbs. Just routine. Same old, same old. And, and you know, 
Maybe you felt the same way about coming to church today. I mean, you've been to so many services over the years, hundreds, perhaps thousands, I think I may be closing in on 2,000, that you don't really expect anything to really happen. Yet more than likely you woke up today, September 14, 2014, thinking it would be just another typical Sunday morning. Get up, get dressed, go to church, sing a few songs, hear another absolutely incredible message by yours truly, not really, you wish, right, in your dreams, then go home to life as it has always been. Same old, same old. Which is kind of crazy when you think about whose presence we have actually gathered in this room to worship. Earlier this week, I, I made this post on my Facebook. When an infinite God comes to dwell in a finite people, dangerously beautiful, awesome things begin to happen. When an infinite God dwells in a finite people, Beautiful, dangerously awesome things begin to happen. You know, I, I think it's time for us to, to believe more, to trust more, and, and to expect more, and to lean forward towards the good things that God has already planned to do in us and to do through us. Amen? But that's where Nicodemus was. It, it all just become routine, right? Just to check off his box. Right, and go home and catch the one o'clock kickoff for the football game. Habit and routine. And you know what? He was okay with that. I mean, over the years, he, he become pretty comfortable with how things were, the routine, the rituals, the responses, the traditions. Though also predictable, it also become kind of comforting to him. And listen, if we're up to him, things could stay exactly the way they were and had been for years. I mean, no need to rock the boat now, but then that young carpenter from Nazareth came storming into the scene and into the temple, the symbol, the focus, the center of their entire religious system. And Nicodemus had never seen anything like it in all of his years. I mean, the fire, the passion of this bold Galilean must have been what David was talking about when he wrote these words in Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. There were thousands of people in the temple that day. The money changers had arrived early to set up their businesses in a courtyard buying for, um, buying like vendors at a flea market for the best spots. And they've been looking forward to this holiday season all year long because uh, they made as much this day as they did the rest of the year. You see, that they had a monopoly on the temple worship. You see, they, with the help of the priests who they bought at a price, had the only acceptable sacrifices that people could offer at the temple. And they were more than willing to exchange an overpriced animal for the people's hard-earned money. And they did so by the thousands. Oh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I'm so sorry. The lamb you, you brought is not acceptable. Go ahead and ask Priest Bob, he'll tell you, but not to worry. Not to worry. You didn't make the long trip to Jerusalem for nothing. I have just the lamb for you. Low miles, one owner, stable cat. Oh, you don't have the right currency to pay? No problem. My money changer friends over here, they will get the right currency for you so you can make that purchase. I mean, these guys are as happy as I am at an all-you-can-eat seafood buffet as they set up their tables. You haven't seen me there. That's some pretty happy stuff. 
They had advertised heavily full-page ads in the Jerusalem Progress. The sky was blue, the air was crisp, the birds were singing, the Judean sand was cool. It was all systems go. But then Jesus walked in. Without any hesitation whatsoever, he, he started overturning table after table after table. And, and, and then Jesus, he took, he took rope and he began, to, he began to fashion that rope into a, a whip. And he began to crack that whip. And at the cracking of that whip, you know, he drove out the oxen and the birds and, and, and the money changers. And, and it, I mean, fly, um, feathers are flying everywhere. Birds are flying everywhere. The corns are, corns are all over the table. And he just kept cracking his whip. Oh, it's on silent. I, I, I so blew that. See, first service, I forgot to shut it off when I cracked my whip, and guess what happened? The phone rang. <laughs> this, is not work, this is not working the way it's supposed to. All right, I, you get the point, maybe. If not, I'm sorry. Anyhow, <laughs> it was a crazy scene. The religious leaders are huddled in the corner. He's cracking the whip. The people are cheering him on. Because finally, someone in this place of worship seems to be taking a stand for them and what is right. Never before they seen such power and such authority. They were stunned as the words of Jesus echoed throughout the temple courtyards like a thundering volcano. Get these out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market? It was easy to tell who was in charge, and, and no one, not the priests, not, not the Pharisees, not the money changers, not even the temple guards dared to stop him or to stand in his way. Nicodemus was stirred by what he saw that day. It caused him to, to think back to the time when he had known such passion for God's house. But that, that was before the titles, before the roads, before the rules, before the routines, the formulas, the tradition, the system. Uh, eventually, a few leaders were able to muster up enough courage to at least ask Jesus a question. But even as they spoke, you could still sense the fear in their voices. What, what, right, do you, what, what right do you have to... To do these things. If you have authority from God, show us. A miraculous sign to prove it. And suddenly the entire courtyard was as still and as quiet as the eye of a hurricane. Every head turned, every mouth closed, every ear tuned in to hear his response. All right, Jesus replied. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What they exclaimed, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you can do it in three days. I understand the events that day had come out of nowhere like an earthquake in central Virginia. Nicodemus was completely taken by surprise, and he found himself totally unprepared for the tremors and aftershocks that violently shook his comfort, his certainty, his life, and his faith. I, I mean, he didn't even know what to think anymore. So much what, what he had built his life on no longer made sense. So many of the, pe of the pieces of his religious puzzle no longer fit together. And now he had more questions than he had answers. I mean, put yourself in his sandals. In a single moment, this man, this Nazarene, this, this young guy with fire in his eyes and thunder in his voice, this homeless ex-carpenter, traveling teacher, had with power and authority passed judgment on the very institution that Nicodemus had been pouring his life into all these years. 
2,000 years ago, a religious guy met Jesus, and, and he was never the same. Well, well, eventually, after many troubling days and sleepless nights, Nicodemus decides to, uh, to pay Jesus a visit, and John records that visit for us in John chapter 3, when he writes, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He, he came to Jesus at night. And Now, John, in those few words, tells us quite a lot about this guy. Uh, one, his name is Nicodemus, which, which means well-liked or popular, too, uh, that he was not just a Pharisee, but that he was also a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the, the Supreme Court of the Jews. Three, John tells us that Nick came at night. Uh, quite question. Hey, you, you got to do what you got to do, right? At least three people are paying attention. Um, question. Why do you think Nick came at night? Uh, was it to avoid the crowds and have a private, uninterrupted conversation with Jesus? Was it because he didn't want his religious buddies seeing him talking to the guy who caused such a ruckus at the temple? Now, one thing we need to keep in mind is that John uses the word dark a lot in his Gospels, and darkness is always seen as something being in opposition to the light. As he said in John chapter 1, in him was life. And that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And even later in this talk that night with with Nick, uh, Jesus will say to him, uh, this is a verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Now, the truth is, we don't really know why Nick came at night, but I, for one, think that John makes a point of mentioning that the encounter with Nicodemus took place in the dark because that's exactly where Nicodemus was at the time in his understanding of God and his kingdom. You see, Nicodemus thought it was all about the physical, all about getting in line the external things of one's life, while for the most part, ignoring what happens on the inside, in the heart. That was the direction that Nicodemus was traveling on in John chapter 3. However, Jesus is about to give Nick an opportunity to hang a U-turn into his marvelous light. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the reckless signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. I've always loved this encounter. I mean, picture the scene. It's dark. Nicodemus is a very powerful and influential leader. He comes to speak at Jesus, speak with Jesus. He has very deep questions. And I think he's, he's extremely intimidated by Jesus. I mean, he saw what happened at the temple, so he begins, you know, with a flower, flowery greeting. Rabbi, we know that you're a really, really awesome guy. You're doing really, really awesome things. Therefore, God must be with you because you're awesome. And there's obviously a lot of awesome sauce being poured out all over you. And and Jesus responds, Nicodemus, I know why you're here. I I can see beneath your friendly greeting. I I know that the things I've been doing have gotten your attention. I know that you're starting to wonder if I just might be the Messiah because as you yourself said, I I couldn't do these things if, if you weren't with me. However, there's a slight problem. What I'm doing, the things I've said, the people I hang out with, and the other day at the temple, they do not fit into your religious box. Nick, I know why you're here. I I know what you're really wanting to know. If I'm really the Messiah, then where's the kingdom? 
Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nick, you can't see it because you're still in the dark. And In fact, the only way that anyone would be able to see or enter the kingdom is if they experience a new birth. Now, now something that I found kind of interesting in my studies for the, uh, this message this week is, is that the word that's translated again in John 3, born again, is the primary meaning of that word is above, unless you're born from above. It's the same word that we find in John chapter 8, verse 23, where Jesus said, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. In John 19, 11, Jesus answered, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from, from above. Paul said in Colossians 1, 2, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born from above. Now understand, what, what, what Jesus did at the, the temple the other day stirred Nicodemus, but what Jesus said to Nick that night 2,000 years ago nearly put him into cardiac arrest. Do you see what he's telling him? He's, he, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the ruling council, a man who everybody looked up to, a man who studied the word of God for years, a man who taught the word of God to other people, He's telling, Jesus is telling this guy, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that, that, that you cannot, Nicodemus, in your present condition, see, experience, or enter the kingdom of God. 2,000 years ago, a religious man met Jesus, and he was never the same. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? And that word old means about 70, 80 years old. Nicodemus asked, surely... He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. That's crazy thought. You know, and, and see, Nicodemus, he doesn't really know what's going on, but he knows enough to know, I think I just got offended, right? It's kind of like when people use that line where you know they're about to offend you. What do they say? Hey, not to be offensive, uh, but I'm going to offend you, right? That, that's a, when they say not to be offensive. And so he, he was kind of offended by what Jesus said. He knew enough to know that. And so I think he's been a little sarcastic here, right? Surely uh, I cannot enter a second time into my mother's womb to be born. And Jesus, even if I wanted to, I don't think my mom would let me back in, right? You know, I, I've never given birth, and I praise God for that every day, you know? And, and, and you know, and I'm, aren't you really amazed that when you see that, you know, I'm, you see a mom holding a baby in her hand. I've seen some big ones, right? You know, uh, we had a lady, and one of our, our uh, people going to our church here, she had twins, and I think like 13, 14 pounds of baby, you know? And, and how, how that was in there to begin with, I have no clue. But I know what? She doesn't want to go back, right? It's like, you're not going back in there again, you know? And, and so he's, Nicodemus is being absurd because he thinks Jesus is being absurd. And Jesus kind of just ignores his sarcasm. He stays on task and begins to say, hey, let me explain this birth from above in even greater detail. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but 
You cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, Nicodemus, it's a spiritual birth. And yeah, Nicodemus, I know it's hard for you to get your brain around this. Just like it's, it's hard for you to, to get your hands around the wind. Think about it, Nicodemus. You can hear the wind. You can, you can, uh, you can see its work all around you. But the wind is beyond the grip of your flesh. It's the same way with the new birth. You, you don't see it coming, and you, you, you can't explain exactly what happens, what the Spirit does inside of a person to make them a new creation, but you can clearly see the effects of the Spirit in the changed lives of the people in which he lives. And Mark talked about that in the video. And, and did you notice in verse 5, Jesus says that this new birth is a birth of what? Of what? Of water and of Spirit. Uh, what's he talking about? I mean, is there an event in the life of a Jesus follower that involves both water and spirit? Absolutely. You know what it's called? It's called baptism. And, and here's why I'm convinced that, John, that Jesus is talking about baptism here. Um, number one, this is in your, in your notes there. I think it's worth talking about since it's about entering the kingdom. Um, uh, both nouns, water and spirit, are joined by a single preposition. Therefore, Jesus is referring to one birth. He said, it's not a birth of water than a birth of the Spirit. No, it's a birth that involves both water and the Spirit. Number two, the, the word water and Spirit are linked in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, which looks forward to the coming of the Messiah's kingdom. Uh, number three, the concept of baptism has already been mentioned by John in John chapter 1. We see people being baptized. Number four... Water and spirit are connected in other baptism passages. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peter said in Acts 2, verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, water and spirit, baptism and spirit. Paul wrote in Titus, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Uh, another reason I, I believe it's talking about baptism, you know, um, you know, uh, the Greek and Latin fathers in the first, second, and third centuries interpret this verse unanimously as immersion, as baptism in water. Uh, this is not going to pop up on your notes, but you know, right after this encounter with, with uh, Nicodemus, you know what the topic of conversation is? It is baptism. And when the church is born, which is God's kingdom, and the new covenant is first announced to God's people, what does Peter tell uh, people to do to get right with God, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen, I, I have no doubt whatsoever that the new birth from above, uh, this birth of water and spirit, is Christian baptism, is a repentant believer being baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. Get it? Good. And by the way, our, 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 we, have a, we have a baptistry right behind that screen, and it's nice and warm, and it was clean this weekend, too. So uh, it, it's ready. 
it's ready if that's something you need to do today. Now, exactly how being immersed in water allows the Holy Spirit to invade the lives of Christ's followers and bring about this new birth from above, I, I cannot see it. I, I cannot explain or understand it in the flesh. I just believe Jesus when he says that that's what happens. I just believe that flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Nicodemus said, now how can this be, Nicodemus asked. Now, we need to understand at this point, Nicodemus' head is spinning around so fast that I think it's about to pop off and go airborne. I, I mean, think about it. Jesus had just placed a huge sign on the interstate of his understanding of God and how to be right with him. A sign which said in bold letters, Nick, you're headed in the wrong, you're headed the wrong way. There's nothing you can do, no act, no performance, no ritual, no title, no position, no family line, and no rule keeping and measuring up that will enable you to enter the kingdom of God. Nick, you cannot earn your way to God. You need to hang a U-turn now. Nick, it's time for you to travel a new road, a road that leads to a life where the pressure to perform is off. Amen and double amen. Check out what one writer, how one writer describes this scene with Nicodemus and Jesus. I love it. The meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus was more than an encounter between two religious figures. It was a collision between two philosophies, two opposing views of salvation. Nicodemus thought the person did the work. Jesus says God does the work. Nicodemus thought it was a trade-off. Jesus says it's a gift. Uh, Nicodemus thought man's job was to earn it. Jesus says man's job is to accept it. All where religions can be placed in one or two camps, legalism or grace. Mankind does the work or God does it. Salvation as a wage based on deeds done or salvation as a gift based on Christ's death. A legalist believes the supreme force behind salvation is you. If you look right, speak right, belong to the right segment or the right group, you will be saved. The brunt of responsibility doesn't lie with God, it lies with you. The result, the outside sparkles, the talk is good, the step is true, but look closely, listen carefully, something is missing. What is it? Joy. What's there instead? Fear. Fear that you won't do enough. Arrogance that you've done more than others. Failure that you have made a mistake. He concludes, legalism is a dark world. And it's a world that Nicodemus have been living in for so many years. It's a world where you don't really need God. It's a world of defending self, explaining self, exalting self, and justifying self. You see, legalists are obsessed with self, not God. And now while Nicodemus' head is still spinning, Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? He's like, come on, Nick. What do you mean you don't get it? You're Israel's teacher, aren't you? You got the word. You studied the word. You taught the word. Surely you heard the prophets talk about a new time that was coming, a, a time when, when God's people would stop focusing merely on outward acts that can be void of heart and meaning, a, a time when God's people will no longer try to do things in order to be right with God, but instead, because they're already right with God, will do even better things than the law requires. Uh, I surely heard a time, it, it, it's coming, you know, when, when, when not only will... Um, well, people not murder each other, but they won't be angry with each other. A time when not only uh, will, will people not commit adultery, but, but a man will not lust after a woman who's not his wife. 
Uh, a time is coming when people will turn the other cheek, where they'll walk the second mile. Uh, a time is coming where people will love their enemies, where they'll keep their word, where they'll give generous gifts. A time is coming where, where people will do unto others all the things they wanted others to do for them. Yes, Nicodemus, the prophets you studied spoke of this. A, a time that was coming that, that involves his spirit and involved newness. Come on, Nick. This new turn, this U-turn shouldn't surprise you. And again, Nicodemus' world just keeps spinning faster and faster and faster. I mean, he has built, I mean, he's built his entire life on measuring up, on earning his spot in heaven. But Jesus does not let up. He continues to call Nick into the light of his grace. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. We testify to what we've seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How, how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And, and just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And at those words, Nicodemus nearly passed out. Everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. I mean, I think his, his legs actually wobbled on that one. No way. That can't be right. That's not how my religious puzzle goes together. That's not how it's been. Understand the good news of the gospel. And, and, and you know, a lot of times I bring out that Kellogg's thing here, you know, in my office. I got a box of Kellogg's cornflakes, right? Remember? That's my analogy we have out here. It's not here, but pretend it's here. See it right here? It's a nice box, unopened. And, and, and everybody, at, you know, been eating Kellogg's cornflakes for years. I go, how do we advertise something that everybody's already eaten? Remember the campaign they had? Eat it again as if for the first time. You know? You know? And, and a lot of times I say, guys, you know, God's truth, you know, you've been, if you've been to church a lot, it gets soggy. It sat in your bowl for so long that. It, 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 the good news seems like old news. Listen, it's never old news. Understand, the good news of the gospel is that it's not everyone who follows the law, who keeps the rules, who lives a spotless life, but everyone who believes that's going to have eternal life. The good news of the gospel is that it's not everyone who follows the law, who keeps the rules, who lives a pure spotless life, but everyone who believes that is going to have eternal life. Amen? Think about that. I mean, don't miss the drama of this moment. I mean, the question and shock must have been written all over the face of Nicodemus. He's like, why? Why would God do this? Why would God just give away what I've tried to earn the last 50 and 60 years, and why would God just give it away to everyone? Come on, Jesus, what in the world would motivate God to give such an extraordinary gift? And Nick is so not going to believe the answer. Uh, I mean, he never would have guessed it in a million years. Nick, Nick you, you want to know why God would do this? You don't want to know why God would give such an extraordinary gift? For God, don't let it get, don't let it get soggy. Yeah, I know we see it behind every field goal, right? For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What's the motive? It's love. And Nicodemus, he never heard such words, never. I mean, I mean he had countless discussions about salvation, but, but this is the first time in which no rules were given, no system was offered, no code, no, no ritual, no, no performance required, just belief in and acceptance of the incredible love of God. For God so loved the world. I wonder what it would be like to heard those words for the first time in that room that night with Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Yes, Nick. <laughs> At the time the prophets have spoken of, it's come. The new covenant is here. Uh, the heart of stone has been replaced with a, with a heart of flesh. A new way has been opened up to you, Nicodemus, that boldly says it's not everyone who achieves, it's not everyone who succeeds, it's not everyone who agrees, but it's everyone who believes and is born of water and spirit that will be saved. And why? Because God is madly in love with the people he created. And this love has caused him to do amazing, radical, unexpected, undeserved things. Oh, how he loves us. This is the verdict. Uh-oh. Here's the verdict. We're scared, right? Uh-oh. We're in the courtroom. Light has come into the world. Uh, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil h- hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. What, what a powerful, life-changing encounter. And, and why is it there? I mean, so what, right? All right. So what? I mean, what are we supposed to do with it? What am I supposed to do with this story? I think we're supposed to ask yourself, hey, what direction am I driving? And I just ask her, are you driving the day in your life? Do you find yourself driving on the uphill, steep, and never-ending road of rules? Or are you cruising down the amazing Grace Highway? I understand the way of rules, it's hard to break. I, I mean, it's so easy to buy back into the system even after you're saving and, 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 start, and start thinking that reading the Bible and going to church and giving your tithe is what makes you right or more right with God. Are you driving in the darkness of religion trying to measure up? Trying to earn your way into the presence of God but always fail, falling short? of yours or someone else's expectation? Are are you still driving down the road of performance? Thinking that it's what you do or don't do that makes you right with God. Anybody ever drive on that road? I got to admit, I I get on it sometimes. And it's not good. (laughs) It's not fun. 
It wears me out. It just sucks the life right out of me. Paul talked about driving down that road in, in the book of Philippians. I mean, Paul was like, hey, I'm, you want to talk about you know, being a Pharisee? I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. You want to talk about the law, you know, legalistic righteousness? I am faultless, circumcised the eighth day, right? I, I mean, tribe of Benjamin. Man, here's my pedigree. Here's, I, I've worked hard all these years. Here's all the stuff I did to earn God's favor, to earn his grace. Paul talks about that in Philippians. But then he says this, but whatever were gains to me, all the stuff I try to do to earn God's favor, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom's sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. All the ways I try to earn God's favor, I consider garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes by what I do and what I don't do, but one that comes, one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of our faith. And, and, and so, I, I think the so what, you know, I, I think the so what today is that, you know, guys, the pressure is off. You know, we, we are saved by grace. His grace is enough. You know, we don't earn it. And we just celebrate it, right? Yeah. We don't do good things to be saved. We do good things because we are saved. And, and God's spirit is in us. You know, if you're on that performance track, I, I just invite you to get off of it, right? I invite you to get off of it. And maybe you're here today and, and, and you know what? You know, maybe you decided, hey, here, here's what I'm going to do to be right with God. And, and, and you know, and, and God says, well, no, how about doing things my way? And God's way is to be born of water and spirit. And maybe you're here today, you've never surrendered to Christ in, in Christian in baptism. You know, that's what God says you need to do. You know, if you'd like to talk about it later, we can talk about it. Maybe some of you don't need to talk about it anymore. You just respond in faith and say, you know what, I know who I am and I want to follow Christ and I want to be buried with Christ, like Peter said, for the forgiveness of my sins and a gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, and, and maybe you're here today and, you know, and, and, yeah, and, and something about God's grace, if, if we get it, we don't take advantage of it. We don't abuse it. You know, and, and, and maybe you're driving down the road of unrepented sin. I, I got to tell you, that'll make you miserable as a Jesus follower. Right, it really will. And so I really think there's a few responses God is looking. Some need to surrender to him. Uh, some need to just celebrate the fact. And man, the pressure's off. Man, just live your life for him because of who you are in him. Would you stand and pray with me? Father God, we love you. And we thank you for this opportunity to, to be in your presence. And God, you know, I, I, I got a feeling this song that we are about to sing that, that one day, I, I, I know it didn't happen that night. I know the next day Nicodemus still kept driving down that same road. And, you know, he, he didn't put down the rules the very next day, God. But he got it the day he took your son's body down from the cross. And, and God, I, I believe that Nicodemus would like to sing this song with us, Lord, and about your grace. And God, and how your grace has set us free and how your grace has won us.
And so, God, I pray that as we sing, God, we worship you and we celebrate what we have. And if someone has a decision to make, God, may they just make it. Uh, May they hear your voice and hang whatever you turn they need to hang. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship. You've shown me grace. You lifted my shame. Drawn me with loving.